The following conversation with Sarah Nelson, International President of the Association of Flight Attendants, aired on October 4th, 2019 on the Radical Songbook on KPOV 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio in Bend, Oregon. The Radical Songbook is hosted by Michael Funky. It is a two-hour show highlighting the role that music plays in social justice and protest and that airs Fridays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. Welcome to the Radical Songbook, sisters and brothers. Here on 88.9 FM High Desert Community Radio, we're streaming live and archived at kpov.org. I'm your host, Michael Funky. My show is also available on mixcloud.com. Sarah Nelson has served as the international president of the Association of Flight Attendants since 2014, and she is currently in her second four-year term. The Flight Attendants Union, the AFA, is part of the Communication Workers Association, AFL-CIO, that's the American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, and I will be talking with her on the phone. Sarah Nelson joined the union, her union, the AFA, in 1996 when she was hired as a flight attendant at United Airlines. Today, she represents 50,000 of aviation's first responders at 20 airlines. The New York Times has called her, quote, America's most powerful flight attendant, unquote, for her role specifically in helping to end President Trump's 35-day government shutdown back in January. It was, tr- it was Nelson who urged other AFL-CIO leaders, union leaders, to, quote, end this shutdown with a general strike, unquote. While that didn't happen, it was the flight attendants union that did force Trump to end the shutdown. You may recall air traffic controllers and airport screeners who were forced to work long hours without pay during the shutdown, were, their jobs were becoming increasingly more stressful, uh, as they worried about how they were going to, you know, pay the rent, so to speak, put food on the table. And some of those government workers started to call in sick. Nelson called the situation unsafe when air traffic controllers started calling in sick. And she said, flight, in t- flight attendants will refuse to work. Planes, she noted, don't take off without flight attendants. Well, that was that. The threat to bring the commercial airlines industry to a standstill caught the attention of Trump and his minions, and it brought the nation's longest government shutdown to an abrupt end just five days after Nelson had urged that the nation's 15 million union members go out on a general strike. I have Sarah Nelson on the phone with me. Um, Sarah, are you there? I'm here. I've already uh, given our listeners a a brief bio of your of you because I didn't want to spend time doing that. I'll just remind them that you are the president of the Association of Flight Attendants, have been since 2014. You represent 50,000 of aviation's first responders at 20 airlines, and that the New York Times called you America's most powerful flight attendant uh, after the work that uh, you and your union did to essentially end the shutdown, the government shutdown back in January. I I would argue that um, the New York Times is minimizing that a bit. Um, I mean, on a certain level, I say, well, yeah, well, sure, she's president of the union, so I guess she would be. But that actually you're not just the most powerful flight attendant. In my opinion, you're one of America's most powerful union leaders today. You grew up in Corvallis, and I really want to thank you for um, coming on the air with me here from uh, your ho- your office in Washington, D.C. Well, thank you very much. And my mom was born in Bend and born and raised in Bend. Really? 
Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. All right. So you've been to Bend. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Family when vacations was... every year, camping at Elk Lake. At Elk Lake. All right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Elk Lake is a great place to go uh, when it gets really hot down here in the, in town. It's, uh, you know, we're all, we all head up to Elk Lake and, if nothing else, just hang out on the beach there at Sunset Beach. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of fun. So when was the last time you were in Oregon? Well, last time I was in Oregon, I guess, was... Uh uh that's a good question i i was i was out for a fundraiser for my mom's choir heart of the valley children's choir in corvallis and that was in may oh wow all right all right well come back i'm sorry i was i i did a i did a convention a union convention in portland in august oh okay was that the afl convention or somebody else's convention no past convention there they are inspectors at the faa oh okay all right. Well, I do really want to thank you for coming on to the Radical Songbook today. Um, and I know you don't have a lot of time, so I kind of want to get right into um, some, some of the issues that I, that, that I know that you have raised uh, in the past few months. I know that you, um, you, you, were, you were a speaker at the um, Democratic Socialists of America convention back in August, I believe it was, in Atlanta. I don't know. Did you run into my friend Milt Tamber there? Uh, quite possibly. But yeah, I I've been on a pretty strict schedule, so unfortunately, I didn't get to hang out too long. All right, he's uh, he's one of the uh, founders of the Atlanta uh, chapter of DSA. Anyway, and I do want to give a quick shout out. I was asked to give a shout out from Central Oregon DSA. But at any rate, at that at that convention, you were quoted as saying, "People think power is a limited resource, but using power builds power," and I'd like to like you to amplify on that idea for our listeners of why people think power is, is limited and how using it builds it. Well, people talk all the time about, you know, using political capital and you only have so much and so you want to use it on certain issues. But the fact of the matter is that people are ready to fight. And if you just look at the example of um, our elections and people feeling disenfranchised from the democratic process, because um, which is what really led to the election of Trump, um, that uh, they were willing to try anything because it seemed like um, just turning out for the elections and electing the same uh, neoliberal leaders is, is leading to the same um, results, that corporations have all the control and uh, the inequality is growing. And um, so using power, like the teachers of West Virginia, um, like the teachers um, in Chicago, who are getting ready to go on strike once again, uh, seven years later here, they started this in uh, 2012, when nobody believed that workers still had any power, and they showed us the way. Um, You know, every time there's a strike, other workers see, wow, you get results right away. And that builds power because more people want to come along with you. And the more people that you have with you, the more that workers can exercise that power. I also think about it in terms of um, my own experience. You know, when when we took a a tough stand at United Airlines in the bargaining, um, we not only got a contract, but we won the respect of the executives so that um, less than a year later, when uh, Maria destroyed Puerto Rico, and I called the United CEO to ask if he would uh, donate a plane so that we could fly AFL-CIO workers down to try to help rebuild Puerto Rico, that he not only took my call, but gave us United's newest seven, uh, 777. 
and um, and loaded it up with supplies as well. So I, th- these are examples of what I'm talking about when I say using power builds power. We can't be afraid to take on the fight. And if you want to take it to historic proportions, uh, I look back to the leadership of Mother Jones, who would tell us that you will fight and win, you will fight and lose, but you must fight. And she said that after the Ludlow massacre, massacre in, Cal- in Colorado, where 1,200 miners and their families had been living in tents on strike and taking company fire, and then uh, the Colorado National Guard fire, and then their entire tent colony set on fire, and 20 people killed, including women and children. And on the other side of that, to pick themselves up and keep going, but what happened on the other side of that massacre that we don't often hear about is that miners came from all over the state and came down and chased the Colorado National Guard out and the company thugs out and set up their own government there and set up the ability for the United Mine Workers of America to actually build a union that became the most powerful union in the country that actually started many other unions that are in place today and built a really good career from something that was the worst conditions, the worst possible conditions where these immigrants were uh, put into conditions that were even uh, lower than the laws that were in place in Colorado at the time. But they fought and they fought and lost, but they kept up the fight. And ultimately they won because they built that power because people wanted to be a part of the fight. People were ready to fight, and that's where we are today. And that's what people have to understand is that we've got to take on the fight. You're not spending political capital. You're building your power. Yeah, that that was a great historical analysis of that, and I hadn't really thought of it that way, that you're absolutely right that, that by the building of the United uh, mine Workers Union. It was John L. Lewis of the United Mine Workers Union who basically stood up at an AFL convention and demanded the formation of the Committee of Industrial Organization, which was the beginning of industrial unionism in this country. So it's really great that you were able to to make that connection. And and I would add also that here in here in Oregon, um, we recently had uh, strike votes taken by Kaiser Permanente workers. That was actually in Oregon, Washington, and California, and grocery workers who are members the United Food and Commercial Workers, and university workers here in the state of Oregon who were members of SEIU. And in all three of those cases, at the last minute, literally days before workers were going to hit the bricks, so to speak, they were able to achieve settlements. So that was the kind of power that they demonstrated by just even saying they were going to walk out. Well, that's right. And they also, and, and understand that in those conversations with individual organizers, with those workers, those organizers were able to point to other strikes that had been successful. The teachers in Los Angeles, right, fighting, fighting for um, the right to have um, good schools and not be taken over by private equity firms, right? And um, so they, there's this whole string of successful strikes. If we had not had the successful strikes um, against um, uh, of the grocery workers in the Northeast, would we have been able to put up as serious a th- strike threat in the West? Right. All of this built upon uh, each other. And as long as people are willing to stand up and say that they're willing to fight, those with money and control have to do that risk assessment. And they determined that the risk was too great because people were seeing that when they stand together, there's nothing they can't accomplish. And those executives took that risk assessment and said, it's too great, we're going to settle instead. 
So speaking of standing up, how how did your union, um, the AFAs, your standing up to the government shutdown? What what was the impact that you felt among your own members when that when you when you all did that? Well, it's it's um, it's interesting because you you talked about the New York Times headline about the most powerful flight attendant in America, and um, I have to say I was a little disappointed with that headline when it first came out. Um, but I've grown to really love it. And the reason that I love it is because it's got flight attendant and powerful in the same headline um, across the Sunday business section of the New York Times with the Delta CEO on page four in a bio of him. And um, what what that says is that we've gone from being relegated to the back of the airplane, the girls in the back, the stewardesses, all of the sexual harassment that we've endured, and, and to this year being recognized as powerful. And when we talked about what was at stake in that shutdown, that if federal workers can't do their jobs, we can't do ours, um, that we had people who, that we count on who were being forced to come to work without pay, our safety and security was at risk. We know what it's like when the planes can't take off. We know what it's like when our safety and security is threatened. Our economic safety and security is threatened as well. And so we knew it was all on the line. And we had to be very clear about what we were willing to do to stop that. And I think on the other side of this, what I've heard from flight attendants is that they are incredibly proud that our union took that stand and incredibly proud that what they are experiencing on the job now is a different level of respect from the people that they're greeting on the planes um, and from when they check into the office, even um, when they're getting ready to go to work. And they're, they're, re- they're really proud that the nation is seeing flight attendants as powerful and um, not this job that um, has been uh, sexualized and objectified um, over the course of our careers. So it wasn't just about us defining our own place, which is what we've done in the past, to stand together to really carve out a career, but it's now all of a sudden risen to this other level where the public is recognizing that we have real power. Yeah, and I, I think that it 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 provides uh, the public an opportunity to recognize the role that women play in in the union in the labor movement in the union movement. The last data that I saw says that about forty five percent of all union members in the country today are women. You're a working woman yourself with a husband and son at home, and so you you face many of the very same obstacles that women workers face today on the job. In addition to issues of sexual harassment and and things of that nature in the workplace. So how do you deal with that? Well, um, you know, I'm I'm really lucky because I met my husband um, doing this work. He is a union lawyer. And uh, so we have a common mission, and I think both of us feel like it's mission. And we engage our son in that. And it's really hard because... You know, my son, as much as um, he's growing up with that, and I think very proud of the work that his parents do, um, that still means that he maybe, you know, doesn't get to say goodnight to me for out of the seven nights of the week and uh, or doesn't get to wake up and see me before school. And, and that that's hard. That You know, that takes a toll. Um, and, the, and the long hours and the phone calls um, at, at night um, before bedtime and... Um, it, there's there's a real um, there's a real give and take there, but um, <clears throat> but but we balance it by um, really working as a family to see this as a family mission um, and bringing him in on that and making him a part of it. 
Um, and it's not always perfect, um, but that's that's how we approach it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you mentioned Mother Jones earlier. I, I, I understand you're from a friend of mine, a listener that's in Illinois, actually, that uh, you're going to be at the Mother Jones dinner out there sometime later this month, I believe. Yes, I'm excited. Um, October 12th. Yeah, yeah. I, I hear that's a great event. My, I, I heard that from my friend Mike Matika, who lives in uh, Illinois. Um, so you've also had, you, and when we talk about union solidarity, you've had flight attendants have been out on the picket line uh, with the UAW workers who are on strike at GM right now. And that, that strike, part of that strike is another example of solidarity in and of itself, where full-time workers there, one of the issues is demanding uh, that temporary workers become full-time. Absolutely. And, and this is an issue, this issue of two-tiered workers. This is something that flight attendants can relate to directly. Um, and at GM, it's in, incredibly in the workers' faces because they're actually standing right next to the person who may be a uh, quote-unquote part-time worker working there for four years without any benefits and without any ability to say no to the mandatory overtime um, without having the right to come back and do the work again. Um, so so these are, um, these are issues that we can relate to because we have flight attendants who are flying on regional jets um, who are uh, defined as uh, 45% less um, in their pay and benefits simply because they're on a regional jet. And so to take, for example, between Washington, D.C. and Chicago, the frequency of the flights might be every hour, but every other hour it's on a regional jet. So you're literally flying the same route with the same passengers booking their travel on the same airline websites, but the workers at that, on that regional jet are making 45% less. Wow. So we understand this directly, and it's something that is across all industries now. This, you know, Management is not that creative. Um, they learn from each other, and they maybe have been doing it in different ways in, in each industry, but the end result has been that there is a two-tier system in almost every single industry across this country today you can see it and we need to call it out and we need to stand against it because anyone who is as we talk about in our union if there's one flight attendant that's undervalued we're all in jeopardy and so we need to lift everyone up if we want to all move forward yeah sometimes um Sometimes the boss can be your, you know, one of the best organizers <laughs> in terms of helping helping workers to see what's going on. Um, so I, I want to shift gears a little bit here. Um, there's plenty of data, obviously, that shows that uh, that that when workers join unions, when they they that inequality for them in their workplaces with their union contract it decreases. Yet union membership is still very low. And still, recent polling shows that um, up to 64% of Americans support unions. So taking all that into account, how do we, how do we organize? How, how do you go about organizing that support into unions that can fight and overcome um, the growing inequity in our society? Well, look, there's a couple things that we have to do. We have to recognize that there's 13 million workers who are members of unions within the AFL-CIO. If you actually activate and fight for those workers, um, and you had 13 million people who were talking about the fact that they love their union and they understand the value of their union, just imagine how many more people would want to come along and be a part of that. So we cannot forget the people who actually are already in our unions, even though the numbers are so um, uh, dismal at this point. Um, the, it, 13 million is nothing to sneeze at. And um, and then what we have to really do is we have to make sure that people understand that unions are not a thing of the past. Unions are a living, moving, breathing 
uh, organization that is uh, really the only way that workers in this country have a way to engage in their democracy, um, address the issues that matter to them right in their pocketbooks and at their kitchen table, and um, that they have the power right now to gain that right by joining a union. And um, so that's, that's accessible to every worker. Now, I'm, obviously we know there are efforts by corporations to try to define people um, otherwise, like Uber and Lyft drivers, right, um, and try to define away their, their union rights. But fighting for that union, even just fighting for it, gives you rights on the job that you don't have if you're not fighting for that union. So what we have to do is make sure that people understand that this is available to them today. This is a movement that is for everyone, which is also why we have to take on the typical age-old tactics of the boss uh, to divide and conquer through sexism and racism and homophobia and uh, defining our jobs as different um, by class, and uh, we have to beat all that back and understand that it comes down to the fundamental idea of we work, they don't, we know which side we're on. Um, and and it, there is real power in showing that by taking action within our unions. These strikes are an important part of this organizing that has to go on and showing the results that we get by coming together to do that. And then also making it very clear that our unions are opening our arms wide to everyone. And this is not a club. This is, if you work, you belong. And you'll benefit. And you'll, and you'll benefit. And yeah. you'll benefit. And you can be part of something inspirational that, Indeed. you know, uh, there is a, there's a real understanding across this country that we're going in the wrong direction for our children. And uh, people, people want to be, they're, they're hurting. And they're looking for answers. And what I find everywhere is when there's just a little bit of leadership shown, people are ready to go. They are ready to go. They've been saying, what have we been waiting for? Um, so we've got we've to set that hard line, set that hard agenda, and, and move forward on the issues that people care about. We've got to beat back these two-tier worker systems. We've got to achieve Medicare for all. We've got to fight on affordable housing and rent control. And we've got to fight privatization and the attacks on our federal sector unions, because the attacks on those federal sector unions are really about breaking down our government and privatizing everything and putting all the control um, in the hands of the corporations. So the, if we are adamant about attacking these things every time and talking about it and connecting the dots between workers, um, just like I was talking about earlier, about these two-tiered systems, this is an issue in GM, and it's incredibly inspirational that people are rejecting the idea that by um, someone doing better, someone else has to do worse. We're rejecting that. That, that, that line that Reagan put out from the 80s is, is dead, is dead to us. Yeah. We don't believe it. We're not going to internalize it anymore, and we're going to reject it, and we're going to call it out as union busting. And so if we are fighting on these issues that people really care about and calling it out and saying, you know what, you're not going to divide us on health care any longer either, because in a for-profit system, it doesn't even matter if you have the best health care system in the world if you're going to a hospital that's understaffed and has to check every time they want to give you a piece of medication. So... Um, the, you know, the, these are common issues that in our unions we can have these conversations and we can have it in a space that is, um, is intimate and uh, 
builds relationships and uh, breaks down the stereotypes that we have been led to believe. I take on the issue of immigration, for example. We had a flight attendant who was detained by CBP and put into ICE detention for six weeks. And when we learned about that, we mobilized and got her out within 18 hours. But what really stuck with me was that we had members during this fight who had been very proud to tell our union that they were Trump voters and that they didn't want us criticizing the president. And when this happened, they said, you know, I want strong uh, immigration reform, but this, this was too far because they could identify with that flight attendant um, and couldn't believe that this was someone who was affected by these policies. So we, we as unions have the ability to tell the stories of the real people, and that's what we have to do to connect people and connect people back to all these issues that we care about that, frankly, if we're willing to have a realistic discussion about, the vast majority of people are for um, Medicare for all. They are for everyone having the ability to have housing that for their families, and they're for maintaining uh, the social services that we have been paying for and building up over the course of generations. So that kind of leads me right into a, a, a question about uh, um, the upcoming presidential election. Will, will your union, will the AFA be endorsing a candidate for president? And if you do, if you do plan to do that, what, what kind of role will members play in making that decision? <laughs> well, our union has never endorsed in the primary before. Oh, really? Uh, we did. We we did, however, in um, uh, 2016 participate in CWA's process in the primary, and so we did endorse Bernie Sanders through CWA. But AFA has never done an endorsement process before in the primaries. We are going to do it this year, um, and so actually we're going to have uh, candidate engagement from about mid-November to mid-January, and then we will have. Uh, a membership uh, vote uh, for a month uh, before determining whether or not we're going to endorse. So members will be able to learn all about the candidates. They're going to be able to answer the, uh, ask the candidates questions, um, see where they stand on the issues that matter to flight attendants, and then they'll be able to participate in that process and decide whether or not we endorse um, and who we endorse, if that's the case. Um, so we do have a plan this time to um, go through that process, but it will be membership-driven. Okay. So since you've been to Bend, I, I, you probably know Bend was once a lumber mill town. And it had, we actually had, there were lots of union members here, obviously. I mean, the Woodworkers Union represented the workers at the two huge pine mills here. And today, of course, it's largely a tourist-based economy. And therefore, that service, that service industry is very, well, it's just totally non-union. How, how, how do you suggest talking to low-wage service workers uh, in a community like this about unions? Well, I think that what we can do is we can point to what Unite Here is doing and what they have rolled out in their campaign of one job should be enough. This is something that everyone can relate to because um, I, I think people are tired of saying that my job is not worth being able to care for my family and live on this one job. Um, and so service workers are incredibly important. None of the rest of us, if if service workers aren't doing their work, none of the rest of us can get anything done. Right. We can't get to where we're going. We can't um, get food at our meetings. Yeah. <laughs> we can't. Want to um, make your own latte? <laughs> in, in safe and healthy hotels. And, you know, it's um, so all work has dignity. And um, service workers in Bend, Oregon should be getting their fair share of the economy that's generated by all these people coming in as tourists and taking, you know, really enjoying the whole uh, Bend area. So 
just a couple more questions. I know you you've you know probably got to go pretty soon, but you, your name has surfaced, of course, as um, possibly, and it's a ways away, possibly the next AFL CIO president. Um, are you interested in that conversation? Uh, I'm interested in the conversation of rebuilding this labor movement and um, setting a really bold line about what we need to do as labor. And so I have said that I, I find it intriguing, um, the the idea of um, serving as the leader of the labor movement. But um, we have real fights to take on right now. Um, my union has work to do in organizing and contract fights, and that's where my focus is going to be. And um, I'm going to continue to uh, try to build these connections between unions and between workers in the meantime and, uh, you know, be a part of really uh, building worker power. That's what I'm interested in. I think when uh, people get too focused on uh, positions or one, one person making a difference, that uh, we, we get a little sidetracked. Uh, but if, if, if I can take part in a conversation of all of us about how we're going to build power together and build um, the, the real activism of solidarity, um, then I, I want to be right in the middle of that conversation. So, um, yeah, you know I had to ask that question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's out there, you know. I mean, what am I going to do? <laughs> uh, so... Uh, you may recall that there, there's a famous quote from Emma, Go- uh, Emma Goldman, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of your revolution. And yeah. I, I was reminded of that when I was looking at your union's website where there was a, a, a video clip of you uh, speaking, and I'll just quote it here. Sometimes we fight by rallying. Sometimes we fight by marching. Sometimes we fight by singing. Sometimes we fight by writing, by striking, excuse me. But above all, when we fight, we fight together. So I love that part about sometimes we fight by singing, and there's... there's uh, there's visual evidence of you doing that on picket lines. It sounds like you're having fun. Yeah. You know, it's so funny because I have been telling flight attendants, actually, for years, do not smile on the picket line. This is serious business. And there's there's truth to that. We have to show management that we're going to be here one day longer, one day stronger than they are, and, and that and then it's serious work on being on the picket line. But what also happens on the picket line is that people share their stories, they make connections. They feel the joy of being together. They feel the joy of owning their power and, and tapping into something that they didn't know they had. And that is just too much to hold in. And so it comes out in singing. It comes out in laughter. It comes out in smiles. It comes out in, in solidarity hugs. And um, it's joyous. And so being in a union is also um, about increasing joy in your life. And I believe that very strongly, and I have felt it. And there's nothing like sharing stories with other workers and and feeling like you're doing something that really matters in your own life and in someone else's life, too. Yeah, I have fond memories of uh, 2 a.m. media picket lines at the Detroit newspaper strike when I lived there and just having fun. I have I I know. I mean, and it's fun, fun, frankly, to also be able to tell the boss, kiss my ass. It sure is. <laughs> Indeed. Well, all right. I've, I've run out of questions. I just really appreciate your taking the time that you just did. It was longer than I, was, than I had been hoped for, and I really appreciate it. Is there any final message that you have uh, for, my, for the listeners here in Central Oregon and beyond that you want to uh, send out to people? Just spread the word. Workers are on the march, and we're going to take our country back. 
All right. Thank you so much, Sarah Nelson, for for joining me. Uh, listeners, if you want to learn more about uh, her work, you, you can just Google her, for to be honest. And But also the, uh, the Association of Flight Attendants website has some really great information on it about what the AFA is doing today to do what um, – to build worker power in our country. Thanks so much again uh, for, for joining me. I, I really deeply appreciate it. And thanks, please thank Taylor uh, Garland for, for making this possible. I really, really appreciate I it. Taylor's an example of somebody who feels the spirit of the mission, too, because I've, I've got her working all hours of the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, don't tell her union. But, uh, <laughs> but thank you so much. And, uh, you know, uh, if you're on Twitter, uh, follow me at Flying with Sarah. And our website is afacwa.org. And um, just appreciate all the support and all the love. And um, let's let's get together and do something really important. Right on. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. So I don't know about you, but I found Sarah Nelson's comments, uh, flight attendants president, to be very inspiring. Uh, and I look forward to hearing more uh, from her and about her. Thanks for listening to this KPOV podcast. KPOV is community radio for the high desert of Central Oregon. For more information and a program schedule, go to kpov.org. We value your feedback. Drop us a note at podcast at kpov.org.